evening. Welcome to Forest Heights Baptist Church this evening. Let's all stand and sing Be Thou My Vision. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence something about that name in there it's hard to say Jesus without smiling a little bit you know it was mentioned this morning about church replanting and um, replanting is a fairly new phenomenon 
Uh, and why, why would we have be concerned as Southern Baptists about replanting churches? I don't know whether you realize it or not, but on average, on average, and this was pre-COVID numbers, but on average, 17 Southern Baptist churches closed their doors every Sunday for the very last time. 17. Do the math on that, and typically it turns out, on average, somewhere around 900 churches a year we have closed in, in Southern Baptist life. Typically, we will plant about 1,200 churches uh, a year in Southern Baptist life. So we have 1,200 churches. You're having a net gain of, do the math, 300. I'll guarantee you that is not keeping up with the population growth. And so we, uh, we have actually a team called the Church Growth Resource Team that helps churches in replanting. We're currently helping a church in kind of an unconventional way replant. It's a church that's down to about 10 or 12 people. The uh, community around them is not conducive to growth. Uh, in the typical terms, it's uh, uh, an area that has become kind of commercial. Um, and when I say commercial, probably more like factory, not factories, uh, distribution centers, uh, corporate warehouses, stuff like that. So there's not subdivisions where they are. So what we've, we've done is we've got a Hispanic group that's been together for about 10 years that's about eight or 10 times the size of that church. They run about 60 or 70. And uh, they're meeting there on Sunday mornings along with the uh, Anglo group that's left. And I think their youth department in that church starts at 65 uh, to tell you some of the younger ones in their church. Uh, they have no young families, and, and folks, I'm just telling you, that is mirrored over and over again. I would not be surprised in Sarepta alone that in the next five years we could see anywhere from uh, six to eight churches close for the last time. So we're very much working, and there's uh, two terms that have been borrowed from the secular world that's being used in, the re in regards to church replanting. One is uh, fostering or adopting. Adopting is a more permanent relationship where a church that has the resources comes in to say, we will help you, but we will somewhat, you'll be a, a, a satellite campus for us, you will be another church, this church in another location, or in the case of fostering, fostering is a less permanent relationship, it's a church that has the resources and the people who will say to a struggling congregation, we'll provide you with some help for two or three years to come in and come alongside and help because a lot of times it's kind of like priming a pump you know how do you how do you reach uh, uh young adults well you, you gotta have some uh to start so how do you reach children and, and youth well you you gotta have some to draw some so being able to replant some some of those families in there so it, it is a fairly new concept but boy it is a much needed concept so we're working on that ourselves as our association so when you support us you help us go out and and work with uh, these churches and uh, they get in all kinds of trouble they really do uh, this church i was talking of when they their pastor retired uh they didn't know where their constitution bylaws were. And when we found them, we found out that not only did they, were they sorely out of date, that they could not, by their constitution bylaws, hold a business conference. 
because only the pastor or deacons, they had no pastor and they had no deacons. So they could not. So I became moderator pro tem at that church for about four or five months so we could get the Constitution bylaws rewritten. They also had allowed their incorporation status to elapse so that uh, they, had, when I told them the ramifications of that, that, boy, I've never seen a Baptist church move so fast uh, when, it, when it comes to something like that. Because if you lose your incorporation status, uh, you become li- you and every member of this church becomes liable for anything that should happen in this campus. Did you realize that? If somebody had an accident out here, fell and hurt themselves, and you were not an incorporated body, and they wanted to sue, they could literally sue every person that's a member of this church if you're unincorporated. Boy, that, that will get their attention like nothing else. <laughs> I could have told them you won't be a member of the association anymore. They'd say, so what, who cares? But you start to <laughs> telling them your bank account could be uh, impacted by that. But anyway, uh, glad you're here tonight. No more chit-chat from me. But uh, be, be praying for us because it's a, it's a challenge. It is really a challenge because sometimes by the time they come to us for help, not unlike many couples when they get in marriage trouble, they don't go to the appropriate people they need help until it's almost too late. So uh, it's hard to tell a church it's too late, but um, we have to do that at times. Would you join me as we pray? Father, tonight as we look at your word, help us, Lord, be challenged in how we follow you. Lord, your word is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, training, and righteousness so that we will be equipped for every good work. So, Lord, let us be equipped tonight. Allow your Holy Spirit to come and teach us everything we need to know about how to follow you appropriately as your disciple. In Christ's name, amen. Um, let's continue our, our worship service with Because He Lives. God sent his son, they called him Jesus, he came to love, heal and
Thank you to uh, Daniel for stepping in and filling in. 
and uh, we hope the tank is doing better. All right. Um, I went to Southwestern Seminary when I was uh, in seminary during those days, and I didn't go to every chapel service, but I went to a good number of them. They were held at 10 o'clock on uh, weekday mornings, and, uh, and uh, I, I will never forget, as long as I live, one of the chapel services. A fellow by the name of Dr. Richard Jackson was preaching, and Dr. Jackson was the pastor of North Phoenix Baptist Church out in Phoenix, Arizona a church that was known for evangelism, known for discipleship. And, uh, and he was preaching on uh, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. And uh, it's pretty easy to get your fired-up crowd in a seminary when you're preaching on the Great Commission. Uh, no problem with that. But it's the first time I recall anybody conveying to me, because I was very familiar with the Great Commission. I knew what was all in, in there. But it was Richard Jackson who I remember saying for the very first time, he said, the only imperative, the only command in the Great Commission was to make disciples. Make disciples. Going is not a command. Baptizing is not a command. The only command in the verbiage of the, new, of the Great Commission is to make disciples. And his church did a phenomenal job of making disciples. They were tremendous. They, they were very strong in evangelism explosion and later became strong in CWT, which was continuous witness training, personal evangelism. But every person in their church who made a commitment to Christ was followed up on with what was used back in that day and time. Later I discovered it was actually developed in Singapore by our missionaries, but a survival kit for new Christians. I don't know if you remember that, but they had a whole process by which in uh, doing that. And, and in doing so, the people that they were reaching out and winning were staying. And the strange thing to me is I have looked through the years and studied and read articles and books about discipleship. One of the things that seems to be very glaring in the evangelical churches in North America today is the fact that about 97% of our evangelical churches don't have any plan or program for discipleship for people. None. Well, they'll have a Bible class here or a Bible class there, but there's no process, no, no discipling process. And it's odd to me that God gives us what is we refer to as the Great Commission, and lo and behold, we say to God, God, we've got a better idea. We're not going to do what you say to do. We're going to do it our way. And that's somewhat of what I want to address tonight as we look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I, I, love, I love 2 Timothy for several reasons, but I, I really love it because most people believe that that's the last book Paul wrote. And when you read 2 Timothy, you discover as Paul writes to Timothy, he's writing somebody that he loves dearly. Writing to a son in the ministry. I never will forget when my pastor, when I was a teenager and surrendered to preach, as I developed a, a stronger and stronger relationship with my pastor, he, he referred me to, to me as his Timothy. And I didn't understand the full impact of that. I said, my name is Lex. It's not Timothy. Uh, 
nothing wrong with Tim as a name, but, you know, it's just not my name. But uh, anyway, it, he, loves, he loves Timothy, loves him, and, and wants to help this young pastor out. And so in this, I, I, there, there's a pattern for discipleship in 2 Timothy 2 that's so prominent that the navigators actually developed a discipleship program called uh, uh, 2-2. And it was uh, 2 Timothy 2-2. And uh, we're going to touch on that tonight with, along with other things. But a disciple, simply, you know, a lot of times we read the word disciple and we automatically think of the twelve. Well, yeah, that does refer to some of them, but most times when you're referring to a disciple in Scripture, you're talking about believers. You're talking about those who have committed their lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In the Greek world of the New Testament, the, a disciple, usually it, um, it went like this. You had a t- prominent teacher, or a rabbi, or something like that, and a student would go and approach the teacher about following them and learning from them. If you know anything about the New Testament, that is not the pattern that Jesus used. Jesus went to them and said, come, follow me. We talked about that several weeks ago. And so uh, uh, this word means a pupil, a learner, a student. And the term uh, in the New Testament, disciples did not, uh, did not seek out Jesus. Uh, the Greek word for disciple is mathetes, mathetes. It's a, it's a word that in the, uh, there, there's a theological dictionary. I mean, you talk about the mother of all dictionaries. This is a Greek dictionary. There are 12, I think it is, that's correct, 12 volumes to this dictionary. And there aren't like English words that tell you they they, they're keyed by Greek words. So you got another Greek alphabet, you got another Greek word, and I found some cheat instruments that help you because you could, it would tell you what volume it is and what page it was found on. And that would help me at times. But just this word mathetes in the uh, Kittles uh, Dictionary of New Testament Words, there are 45 pages. 45 pages on this book, on this word. Uh, 45 pages, it deals with how it was used in classical literature, how it was used in the Septuagint, how it was used in the New Testament days, how Paul used it as opposed to how John used it, and, and so on and so forth. But anyway, uh, the, the uh, task of the disciple was to do the things that Jesus did and be like him. The basis of that discipleship was your faith. You, you didn't learn from, by following him without faith being involved. C.S. Lewis said this about uh, our walk with the Lord. He says, uh, all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. All that is not eternal is eternally out of date. And so we are investing in eternal things here when we start discipling people. One writer wrote it this way, discipleship is the process of becoming a committed follower of Jesus with all the spiritual discipline and benefits which it brings. So I want us to look tonight at first, uh, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 7, as we read this passage tonight. And I want us to look, first of all, at the source of discipleship. The source of discipleship. In verse 1 of chapter 2, it says this, And you, therefore, my son. Now, let's just pause right there for just a moment. You can kind of pick up. 
What kind of relationship does Paul have with him? He says, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. When you talk about the source of discipleship, you've got to learn, first of all, that it's based on a relationship. Relationship. Paul said, you therefore, my son. He was not talking about a biological relationship. He was talking about a spiritual relationship. It's like we refer to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Or, in my case, I refer to the, fe- the fellow who was my pastor. He's my father in the ministry. Because he was. And I trusted him like a father. Paul had a number of followers uh, who had... Paul had a number of followers. Timothy seems to have held a special place in his heart. And Paul first uh, found him on his, on his second missionary journey. His mother Eunice was already a believer and his father was a Greek. Timothy seemed to have been converted on Paul's first missionary journey. By his second missionary journey, he was already a disciple and well reported of. Paul's relationship was a mentor to him, a spiritual father of sorts. And Timothy served the role as a spiritual child or learner but it was based on a relationship and that was a relationship with Jesus Christ he was the source of this discipleship it was also based on responsibility based on responsibility what did he tell him to do he says be strong be strong Uh, strength Our, our present strength is not sufficient for tomorrow you know that right I mean, you can take your Bible and spend all day reading it today and uh, it will not be the manna you need for tomorrow. I really believe it's like spiritual manna to us. Any manna that was, it was, you did it every day. You did it in, involved in it every day. And he says, be strong. It means that being continually strong. Acquire the strength that's needed. Uh, literally, it means be invested with power abiding in a state of power the kind of strength to avoid Paul seems to imply is don't depend on your own strength Uh, don't depend on your own experience don't depend on depend on your own knowledge or your own ability depend on be strong uh, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus it's kind of an interesting phrasing there if you think about it because the It's based on a relationship, it's based on a responsibility, but it's also based on a resource, and the resource is our grace that is in Christ Jesus. Let's think about grace for just a moment. Grace. Uh, You've heard the old acrostic, right? God's riches at Christ's expense. That's good. I like that. It's divine help freely given to those who do not deserve it. Divine help that's freely given to those who do not deserve it. It's bestowal of God's favor in a relationship. That's what it means to have grace. It denotes God's empowerment of believers to live the Christian life. Timothy's strength was not in his own. It was a divine gift that God gave him. Grace is us receiving that which we cannot earn or ever deserve. We experience that in salvation through Jesus Christ, which means in salvation, we are utterly dependent upon Jesus Christ for salvation, right? Uh, And it's given to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, how do you grow in faith? 
I mean, grow in grace. If grace is something you can't earn, and grace is something you can't deserve, and it's being utterly dependent upon God, the way I read that and the way I understand that is this. The more we grow to be like Christ, the more utterly dependent we are upon him. And we seem to flip that at times, don't we? Well, I've been a Christian a long time, and I've been serving the Lord a long time, and I just don't need all this uh, elementary kind of stuff anymore. I just don't. No. The further I go in my Christian life, and I've been following the Lord for 50 years, the further I go, the more dependent I am upon him. But yet I still have that stupid flesh side of my thinking that some mornings I get up and I think, do I want to watch TV or do I want to read the Bible? Let's, let's think about that one. Or do I want to catch a couple of extra winks and don't get up in time to do my Bible study? Preacher, you done gone to meddling now, hadn't you? But do you hear what I'm saying? He's telling Timothy, Timothy, you may know a lot, but listen, you think you depended utterly on the Lord for salvation? You need to depend on him utterly for everything in your Christian life. you got to grow in the grace, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You're familiar with the term atrophy. Atrophy is the partial or complete wasting away of part of the body. Though there are numerous causes for this, one of the causes of atrophy is disuse or lack of exercise. Atrophy sets in when it is not used. Paul is saying, listen, don't let atrophy set in, Timothy. Uh, exercise, be strong. There is that sense of personal responsibility for initiating the process. Our source of being a disciple does not reside in our abilities or skills. Our source of being a disciple does not reside in our experience. Our source of being a disciple, a disciple resides in Jesus Christ. We become more and more like him in everything we do. So that's the source of our, our discipleship is Jesus Christ. The sequence is very interesting also that he gives us in verse 2, the key to this whole passage, I think. The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these two faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You're not to be a, uh, a reservoir of truth. Do you understand that? You're to be conduit. You ought to receive it in its hand and give it out in that hand. What you've learned from me, Paul says, teach others who likewise can teach others also. You receive the content, things which you've heard from me. This, this is the sum total of everything that Paul taught him. This is the whole, whole uh, enchilada, so to speak. Timothy learned from Paul as he assisted him on the missionary journeys. I like what St. Jerome stated one time about the scriptures. He said, scriptures are shallow enough for a babe to come and drink without fear of drowning and deep enough for theologians to swim without ever touching the bottom. 
I like that. You think you're a scholar with this book? <laughs> you don't know Doodley. Because he, he, it is a reservoir that is too, too deep for us to ever touch the bottom. Receive the content. Relay the content. Entrust to faithful men. Not just to anybody. Don't cast your pearls before swine. But he says, be entrust them to faithful men, faithful people. Entrust means to commit, to place beside, to place before someone who, that you trust. Timothy was responsible not only to learn the doctrine, but also to relay the doctrine without any contamination. Not just to any believer, but to the faithful believer. A faithful person is one who is willing to pay any price to have the will of God accomplished in his or her life. And then you've got to reproduce the content. You receive the content, you relay the content, you reproduce the content. What kind of people do we entrust them to? To faithful men who what? Are able to teach others also. Who are able to teach others also. They must also possess the knowledge and the power of communicating knowledge to others. No man is sufficient for these things of, of himself. The sufficiency comes in God. He who makes men, us ministers of the word of God. Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators, said this, Activity is no sub substitute for production. And production is no substitute for reproduction. Reproduction. Let me ask you something. This is a hypothetical. Suppose you were given the choice that you could do one of two things as far as making disciples. What if somebody gave you the choice that you could win 100,000 people a year or disciple one person a year to the point that they in turn can do what 2 Timothy 2 talks about, that they can then go and in turn teach someone else, which one would you choose? Which is the most effective way? It's pretty amazing if you think about it. After one year, you would have two disciples compared to 100,000 disciples. After five years, you would have 32 disciples compared to 500,000 converts. After 10 years, you would have 1,024 disciples compared to one million converts after 15 years you got 32,768 disciples compared to one and a half million you say well Lex the math is just it's not, not it's not in favor of that second choice but we ain't gotten far enough yet after 20 years you have 1,048,576 disciples compared to 2 million converts and here's where the pedal hits the metal between 20 and 25 years you jump from 1 million to 33 million 554,432 disciples compared to 2.5 million after 30 years 1 billion 1 billion 73,741 excuse me Seven, one billion, not used to dealing with these kind of numbers, one billion, seventy-three million, 
741,824 disciples compared to 3 million. After 33 years, I chose that number because that's the length of the Lord's life. You would have 8 billion. 589,934,592 disciples compared to 3.3 million. Do you think God knew what he was doing when he said make disciples? If we had listened to him, the approximate uh, population of the world today is 7.3 billion people. <laughs> we would have already won the world. We make the mistake at times, and I, this is no slant against anybody. I, I do nothing but love the ministry of Billy Graham. Love the man. Just he's a man of great, great integrity and uniquely used by God. But listen, my friends, you can fill a stadium after stadium after stadium after stadium of people. And guess what? Uh, it will not have the impact of making disciples in your own church with your own people. It's imperative that we live our lives as Paul did, that a person who is pouring into our lives into others, it is imperative that we have a Timothy in our life that we are pouring into, uh, someone who is... Uh, uh, able to take that and share it with others and taking what we have learned and entrust it to others who will in turn trust uh, in trust to others also and, uh, i remember when avery willis shared that with us back in 1982 at a discipleship conference it absolutely <laughs> it blew my mind in this passage of scripture you have samples of discipleship he uses three examples here, beginning in verse 3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. So a soldier, an athlete... And a farmer. Endurance as a soldier. You think Paul knew anything about endurance? Have y'all read recently what he went through? Second Corinthians chapter 11 verse 23 and following says, And they are servants of Christ. I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from the, my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea. I don't think there was any place he left out there. Dangers from false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst and often without food in cold and in exposure. I get kind of embarrassed when I read that. Because I've had nothing of a hardship compared to what Paul did. And he continued on. 
he says, suffer hardship. You think he knew what he was talking about? I think so. Speaks of uh, persecutions and misunderstanding and opposition. He said, a good soldier, good means a noble and excellent one. He says, he does not get entangled in the affairs of everyday life so that, he cannot, so that you cannot please the one who enlisted you. Now, don't be preoccupied with mundane stuff is what he's saying. Hey, keep your priorities in check. Keep things uh, uh, that are pleasing to God at the forefront of your mind. He speaks of the importance of a godly separation to please the one who's fit within there was a man in my church. I loved the man dearly. He was a retired pastor. Matter of fact, we were talking about him earlier, a pastor who had had a stroke. He was in his 80s when I got there. And, and uh, oh, he was just an encouragement to me. I was a young pastor. I was about 36 years old in this church and never had a, a retired pastor that I preached to every Sunday. So it was a little bit intimidating. And uh, he used to come to me almost all the time. He couldn't speak very well because of the stroke. And he would always say, I like what you said, and I like what you did. And uh, boy, that was, that, was, that was uplifting to me coming from him. And I had the privilege of doing his funeral. And when I got to that point in the funeral, I talked about what he did for me. And I said, I have a feeling that he's standing before the Father right now. And the Father's saying to him, I like what you said, and I like what you did. That's what he's talking about, pleasing the one who enlisted us. Endurance as a soldier. Obedience as an athlete. Verse 5 says, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Every sport has some kind of rules. If you're going to run track, you cannot cut across and catch up with the folks that have gotten ahead of you. And Now, I watched my 8-year-old granddaughter uh, last uh, Saturday, last Friday night actually, Friday night was a week ago, play basketball. Now folks, they, they liberally interpret basketball. <laughs> Those rules don't really apply to that particular group. It was like dribble a couple of times, run a little bit, dribble a couple of times, run a little bit. Don't have to dribble, you just run a little bit. I mean, it's crazy. But in most cases, they got certain rules. You can only take so many steps. And the rules that apply in football don't apply to basketball or baseball. They're unique to their own place. And he says there, there are rules about this. There are not only rules that participate about the actual game that takes place. There's rules that pertain to the one who's running the race. The one who's participating as an athlete. In other words, you've you got to be conditioned to get out there. In the Greek games of old, if you pledged to be a part of the Olympics, you were required to swear that you had trained for at least 10 months before you participated. <laughs> well, sometimes we get in the midst of something and we're, we're trying to do our best. In the analogy of an athlete, we're trying to do our best when we've had absolutely no preparation for that. <laughs> My personal experience with that one was, whew, I was about uh, probably 29 years old. good friend of mine who was in our previous church, he had just moved to a new church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, my, my, you got to understand, Oklahoma's pretty flat, okay? Y'all, y'all understand that. Around here, it's up and down and all around, but down there, it's flat. It is flat almost everywhere. 
And so my friend who lived in Duncan, Oklahoma, which is in the southern part of the state, called up. They were going to come see us. They had not been to see us since we had moved to Tulsa. And uh, he kind of jogged a little bit, and I kind of jogged a little bit. <clears throat> and so Jim and, Jim and I were talking, and I said, hey, they got this thing called, a, and I forget what it's called. Let's call it a Trinity Trot, but I, I know that's not what it was. But anyway, it was, it was like a 5K thing. Huh? Uh, I don't know if that's what it, if that sounds good. We'll use that tonight if I want to. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I ever got the t-shirt. I don't think they had t-shirts when I crossed the line. <laughs> but uh, we had talked about six months before they were going to come, and I'd mentioned that. He says, yeah, let's do that. And I just kind of, it went to the back of my mind somewhere. And so he calls me up, and we talked several times in between them. Then a couple of weeks before them coming, he calls me up and says, hey, we still going to run that race? And I said, um, yeah. So for a couple of weeks, I got out and somewhat jogged a little bit. Well, again, I'm assuming, I'm assuming it's Oklahoma. There are no hills. There's, there's nothing. And so they arrive uh, on a Friday night. And the, the run was to take place on Saturday morning. And so Friday night they said, uh, why don't we go over there and drive the course? I said, sure. It was on the western side of Tulsa. They had this little part on the western side of Tulsa where TV stations were located. It was somewhat called some kind of a mountain. I didn't even know it was there. The race did not start there. It ended there. And my life flashed before my eyes when I saw the track and what it was going to be like. And Jim is a good four or five years younger than me. So, you know, youth can make up for a lot of stupidity at times. Oh, my goodness. Well, I started up that incline, going up to the latter part of that thing. Uh, let me just put it this way. There were ladies with strollers that were passing me. <laughs> my body was hurting like I'd never hurt before. Uh, that is the opposite of what Paul is talking about here. He says, if you're going to run as an athlete, you need to compete. Because if you don't go by the rules, you don't run. You don't win. I didn't, there was no danger of me winning that one, that's for sure. Then there's the uh, persistence of a farmer. A hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. The person who toils and labors without any thought of glamour or metals associated with it, no, not uh, with, with like a soldier or an athlete might. Uh, how does a farmer labor? He cultivates the soil, he plants the seed, he waters the plant, he protects from the insects, pests, and disease. He waits for the growth totally dependent upon whether or not it rains at the right time or not. Persistent believer is one who is diligent about Bible reading, about prayer, and about worship. No glamour. There's, there's nobody in that study when I'm there in the morning at 5.30 every morning. I, there's, no, there's nobody there. I, I remember talking about discipling. I remember the first evidence that my son was beginning to mimic me I can't remember exactly how old he was probably somewhere between one and a half and two years of age he hadn't started talking much at that point just a little bit but not much a lot of garbling stuff going on 
and we sit down at the table to have a meal. And I look over there, and that little rascal has bowed his head, and he's going, <laughs> I thought, wow. I very purposefully, when my children were growing up, when I would have my quiet time in the morning, I would make sure I did it, not in my study where they could not see me. I did it at the kitchen table because that's where they came first in the morning. And I wanted it to be etched in their minds that when they saw their dad first thing in the morning, the thing that he was looking at first was not the newspaper. It was this. It was this. Paul says there's a samples of discipleship. You know, a lot of us want to be on the team. Matter of fact, how many times have you won <laughs> your team that you pull for? Let's just, you know, for practical purposes, say uh, the Bulldogs. Uh, how many times have they won and you've said, we won! When you didn't run a play. You weren't at training camp this summer. You hadn't been at any of the practices during the week all you did is yell a lot scream get excited well Paul is one people that are more than just claiming to be on the team he wants people that are on the team make disciples it's an intentional process according to the great commission if we're going to make disciples there will be hardship like a soldier if we're going to make disciples they must obey like the rules like an athlete. If they're going to be made disciples, they must be persistent. Paul takes it further to say, make disciples who can make disciples who can make disciples who can make disciples. It's not easy. It's not easy. There's a lot of other things you can do. Matter of fact, we can get busy doing lots and lots of really, really good things. And miss doing the best thing. Miss doing the best thing. We've been trying to improve on God's plan for making disciples for the last 2,000 years. We've tried substitute ways. Mass meetings, conferences, retreats, video, audio, TV. Maybe the new pastor will cause our church to grow. Programs, gimmicks, you name it, we've done it in an effort to avoid doing what God said to do all along. And that is make disciples. Make disciples. I'm going to get a little personal here. It's, it may get a little uncomfortable for you, but I, I just want you to see the, the true picture. Whether you realize it or not, your church turns in what's called an annual church profile every year. It goes to the state convention. They compile it. They make it available to us so that we can do a, what's called a church trends profile. And I pull up a church trends profile for Forest Heights Baptist Church, and over the last 10 years, according to your uh, church profile, uh, you have reached 12 people for baptism. 12 people for baptism. Excuse me, that's not correct. 16 people for baptism. Um, in the last 10 years. It doesn't take a real math wizard to figure out that's, that's, not a, that's not but a little over one per year. So let me ask you this. Is it unreasonable to say that your church ought to be able to reach one person on average a month 
during the course of a year. Is, is that really stretching it? I don't think so. Now, you're not by yourself. I mean, I mean, if misery loves company, I'm fixing to give you lots and lots of company. Two years ago, we had 42 churches in our Sarepta Baptist Association. Almost, uh, well, that's over half. Over half of our churches did not baptize anyone. Zero. That will disturb you. It disturbs me. I lost some sleep over that one. I thought, what can I do to help? Because really, quite frankly, we have we have people that gotten we've gotten kind of content where we are. We have forgotten what it's like to be lost. The longer you are a Christian, the more likely you are to have forgotten what it's like to be lost. And to not know that you have absolutely no hope. Can you imagine being lost and dealing with the pandemic that we've been dealing with this past year? I mean, you think it's tough enough on Christians. Imagine being a lost person. Now, for the sake of discussion, let's say that this next year, in the next 12 months, that this church was able to baptize 12 people. Let's say out of those 12, six stuck, and you were able to disciple them to the point they could disciple somebody else. You see, a new believer can, all they got to know is one step ahead of the person that's behind them because they can lead them. They're excited, they're pumped up, and they're ready to go. But let's say that only six stuck, so that in 2022, you had yourself and 12 or six other people, so that's a total of seven. And each one of them reached 12 people in 2022. That would be 84 people. And let's say just only half of them stayed, so 42 people stayed. And each one of them you were able to, to disciple. 42 of them, we don't know where they are, but 42 of them stayed. And those 42 people reached 12 people during the course of a year. You know how many people that would be? 500. <laughs> and that's only counting if half of who you win stays. Here's the problem that we're facing in our churches, and it's not just here. You know, I'm, you know, take it easy. I'm not bashing you. I just want you to see the true picture here, folks. The problem is we're depending on transfer growth from other churches. And what happens when a believer from another church joins this church, guess who they know? They only know believers. But you reach a lost person out there, Studies have been done that shows that of the 25 significant relationships in a lost person's life, it is a miracle if one of their top 25 is a Christian. So if you know a lost person, you may be the only person in their circle that has a voice for their ear to hear. Now let me tell you, you reach a lost person, <laughs> 
they experience the joy and peace that Jesus Christ can bring to your life, they can't wait to tell others about it. It's not mystical. Let me tell you what will not solve this problem. Calling your next pastor. If you, if you think that's the magic bullet, studies have been done with the impact of pastors. 6%, that's it. 6%. So add 6% to what you got right now, and that's probably what you're going to get. Unless that pastor comes in and equips you to be a disciple maker. And then it could change this, the whole course of this church and this community. God set it up in his word. <laughs> it's not a rocket science. It's pretty simple. Take what you've learned. Share it with somebody else. And those who are un unresponsive, the Bible says, ah, just take the dust and get it off your feet. Move on. Move on. Father, tonight, these are not easy words to share, but Lord, the demands upon you that you place upon us are rather significant. You did not call us to become converts. You did not call us to become church members. You did not call us to some kind of organization. You called us to be followers of yours. You called us to be not only followers of yours, but also relayers of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. You also have given us the mandate to not only do that, but also make disciples so that we are training people up in their spiritual walk. Lord, if it were easy, everybody would be doing it, so I know it's not easy. The enemy is working to try to get us more busy doing busy stuff so that we don't have time to disciple people and invest our lives in others. Forgive us, Father, when we have been deaf to your instruction, that we have ignored your mandate. But, Lord, give us an opportunity to follow you tonight. That we make this pledge, Lord, that from this day forward, I'm going to pray for Lord for you to put a Timothy in my life. I'm going to pray, Lord, that, I, that Timothy would have somebody in their life. So that as we get to the end of our lives, we can see a trail, a family trail and lineage there. Not having anything to do with blood, but having everything to do with Jesus. So that we can look back on people who we've had an impact on because we invested in their lives going to be tough. It's going to require endurance like a soldier, discipline like an athlete, perseverance like a farmer. But Lord, for your glory, we will do it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Not only are you required to make a disciple, you need to be a disciple. I don't know what God is dealing with you about tonight. I've had some pretty strong words for you. Don't throw anything at me, please. Don't shoot the messenger is the word. I lovingly tell you that because I want nothing but the best for your church. And there is nothing but the best when you follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how God's been dealing with you tonight. But if he has, these next moments are for you. You can come and talk to me. Pray with me. Pray here at the front. Whatever God's leading you to do, you come. As we stand together and sing, you come. Let's stand.
In loving kindness, Jesus came, my soul in mercy to reclaim. And from the depths of sin and shame, through grace he lifted me. From sinking sand, he lifted me with tender hand. He lifted me from shades of night to plains of light. Oh, praise his name. He lifted me. Um, we just have, uh, I think we're meeting as far as deacons just for a few minutes. Is that correct? Yeah, just for a couple minutes. Um, anything else? All right, well, let's continue. Let's end our service with He is Lord. Oh, yeah. As far as, as far as we know, time changes this weekend, unless our uh, assembly decides differently. Um, stay tuned. But we will continue. We will end our service with He is Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. He risen from the dead and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord.